This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's examine the decision last week to close hundreds of metro area schools because of an unspecified threat. The woman at the heart of that perceived threat killed herself, possibly before the massive search for her even began. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry has been learning more about how superintendents reached the decision to close and what they're trying to learn from this incident. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Ryan. How did the superintendents make this decision and precisely when? Well, um, 23 superintendents, along with some state public safety people, all got on a conference call at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesday night of last week to talk about what they knew from the FBI, what they should do about all this. You know, at the time, there was a credible threat that something could happen, but it was extremely vague. They knew at the time that a Florida woman was, quote, infatuated with Columbine. They knew that she bought a one-way ticket to Denver, and she actually got to Denver. She took that flight. They knew that she went straight from the airport to a gun store near the high school to buy a shotgun. And then they last saw her on the Monday near Lookout Mountain, and she'd kind of disappeared. Um, But they hadn't really seen, you know, or heard from her. So police had her cell phone number. They were trying to unsuccessfully reach her. So the superintendents knew this much, and that was about it. And with the Columbine anniversary looming, they said they were just mostly worried that she was hiding out somewhere, you know, like in a car or something. And they made, during that call, this collective decision to shutter all the schools the next day. Now, as soon as people heard that schools were closing, I know many of them wondered, how long is this going to last? What have you heard about the timeline from superintendents? I mean, mean, they must have been worrying about that, too. Yeah. I mean, I heard that from everybody I talked to, parents, superintendents. It's like if they made the correct and cautious decision to close the schools Wednesday, the huge looming question is, what are they going to do Thursday? What are they going to do Friday? Especially if they hadn't heard from the woman they thought could be hiding out. This is the uh, Westminster superintendent. Her name is Pamela Swanson talking about that. How long do you go in a school system, you know, without having your kids in school? And what additional measures and procedures do we need should this type of thing come to pass again? I mean, it was such a fluid situation. I think what you do is you take the information you have at the time, you make your best decision. And honestly, closing the schools on Wednesday was kind of a method of buying time to figure out what to do for Thursday and Friday if nothing changed, you know, what they would what they would do if if they had to open the schools before she was caught. I mean, it sounds like they are still raising questions themselves, these superintendents, that they don't have all the answers necessarily. What were they thinking in this regard, though? Well, you know, this this has not really ever happened before here in Colorado. And as you know, the Jefferson County superintendent, his name is Jason Glass. He was in the eye of the storm. You know, Jeffco is among the state's largest school districts, 85,000 kids. It's where Columbine High School is. They're accustomed to the kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, weird people who treat the high school as a tourist destination. You know, people drive by, they try to get into the school to see the lockers, that sort of thing. And the 20th anniversary heightened all this. Um, Glass told me when they made the decision to close the school on Wednesday, he thought it was the right decision. But when he got to work really early Wednesday morning and no kids were there, you know, no kids are in school, he started immediately trying to plan on what it would take to get those 80-some thousand kids back to school and safe, you know, maybe as early as Friday. 
um, but, you know, without having any conclusion to the criminal investigation into the woman. I think it's hard to overstate how disruptive this whole situation was. I mean, half a million children out of class, an untold number of parents and guardians who had to take off from work to stay with them. Yeah. And I will note that it wasn't limited to public school kids either. There were private schools, preschools, daycares. They weren't a part of that official discussion, that 1030 p.m. call, you know, but they all had to decide individually how to respond to the situation. I mean, my my kid's own daycare, it's a private, you know, pre-K in Denver, sent us a push notification at 1.30 in the morning, they were th- saying they were going to remain open on Wednesday, keeping all the kids inside. And then at 7 a.m., about 30 minutes before it actually is supposed to open, they said they changed their minds. They had received additional information and they were going to close for the day. So it was a rough day for a lot of people. No one really knew what to do. Have you talked to any parents about what they think of how the schools handled things? Yeah, I had an interesting conversation uh, with a parent. Her name is Shauna Fritzler. She has a freshman at Lakewood High School. And she sat on some school safety committees. And she had an interesting story about how when she was on the committee, she's wrestled with some of the scary stuff and thought a lot about this. But here it was the night before the closures. And her daughter comes out of her bedroom and tells her mom she's really scared. Honestly, when she came out of her room, my heart just dropped. (laughs) So (laughs) it's hard to still talk about, actually, (laughs) because I did not expect it. And I had no idea how much fear she had or how much the kids were talking about it. You know, ultimately, Fritzer, Fritzler wants more communication, you know, more, more resources from parents about how to handle these kinds of situations for the kids. You know, because for all the focus, you know, among the media, really, on the FBI investigation, this woman's social media record and what have you, there are tens of thousands of kids who were scared and could have used some TLC. And parents could have used some guidance on how or what to say, you know, how do you respond to kids who are scared like that? And all of this makes you wonder what happens next time, if there is a next time. Right. Uh, What do superintendents have to say? Well, you know, I don't think any of them um, regret or think they made the wrong decision in closing. I think on Wednesday, I think the planning has started now on how to handle these kinds of vague yet credible threats in the future if it just stretches on for multiple days, because obviously... You can't close schools for weeks and weeks and weeks. Like if someone's hiding out, how do you reopen the schools? Do you go on a permanent lockout? What about food deliveries? What about after-school activities? That sort of thing. And their superintendents have said they're already starting to plan for this. You know, they're trying to learn lessons from the situation. In Jefferson County, where Columbine happened, the superintendent, he seems like he's pretty ready for this sort of thing, but he also thinks it's a learning experience. Because, again, we want our schools to be super secure, but we also do not wish anybody to be able to hold our whole education system hostage or else we sort of encourage them uh, occurring again. And I heard something similar from the Westminster superintendent, too, that she wasn't really sure how the district was going to proceed in the future on this, but that that was going to be the the very imminent discussion they were going to have. Right. And how not to encourage copycats in a way. Exactly. I mean, it makes sense that superintendents would say they'll learn from the situation. But I'm curious, knowing what we know now, that the woman who who caused all this died by suicide early on, an hour outside the metro. uh, Did you hear any regrets from folks in hindsight about making the decision they did? No, you know, no one talked about regret. And I think the view 
uh, the best view I can think of is when I actually went to the FBI press conference the day of all this. And I think it was best summed up by what the FBI special agent in charge said, um, announcing the end of this whole situation. They had just found the woman who um, had apparently committed suicide. He was asked what he'd say to parents who may be questioning the decision to close schools. As a parent, I would say thank you to the school system for protecting my child. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry with follow-up on last week's extraordinary decision to close hundreds of schools. That was as law enforcement searched for a woman they believed to be a threat. China has arbitrarily detained as many as two million members of Muslim minority groups, according to the U.S. State Department. Many of them are Uyghurs. The Chinese government denies holding people against their will. Tomorrow, the University of Denver holds what it calls a day of solidarity with Uyghurs. Nader Hashemi directs DU's Center for Middle East Studies. Nader, welcome to the program. Happy to be with you. I'm also joined by a guest whose name we won't be using. She'll explain why in a moment. She is Uyghur and originally from China. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. Nader, give us an overview of the situation. Briefly, what's happening to Uyghur people in China, so far as we know? I think there's a campaign of cultural genocide taking place right now in uh, northwestern China against this minority Muslim population. Uh, There's massive amounts of human rights documentation, reporting, um, investigative journalism that suggests that this minority population has been targeted for a campaign of forced cultural assimilation as part of um, this expansion of authoritarianism in China. And so it's arguably one of the worst human rights catastrophes in the world today. And the event tomorrow at the University of Denver is really an attempt to raise awareness about this growing catastrophe. Much of what you say there is supported by the State Department's own analysis, which finds that there are likely internment camps. Uh, Tell us what this looks like on the ground, again, from what uh, those on the ground have been able to glean. These are internment camps where anyone who's suspected of um, sort of disloyalty, um, suspected of sort of just being different culturally, is rounded up without any due process, thrown into these internment camps, which have been described as the biggest internment camps in the world since the Nazi Holocaust. We're talking about 1.5 to 2 million people out of a total population of 11 million. So that's about 15 to 20 percent of the entire entire Uyghur population put in these internment camps where they're forced to undergo indoctrination, chant slogans in praise of the Chinese Communist Party, renounce any commitment to their religious identity, um, forced to sort of, you know, uh, undergo these types of, you know, pl- these, 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 these programmings in order just to, to survive. So it's really a horrendous situation. And we know this because people who've come out of the camps have given testimony. And there's a lot of human rights sort of reporting and documentation that verifies what's happening in these internment camps. Let me read this from the U.S. State Department's 2018 Human Rights Report, international media, human rights organizations, and former detainees reported security officials in these camps abused, tortured, and killed some detainees. Uh, Again, China denies detaining people against their will, calling these vocational centers uh, and say they're combating terrorism. 
Uh, can you speak to the threat that the Chinese perceive in the Uyghur people? Well, there have been acts of violence, you know, um, largely in response to the persecution of the Uyghur minority. But this is a gross overreach and overextension, which in many ways will make the problem much worse. So the justification is that like we're trying to clamp down on extremism. But in many ways, I would argue that the policies that the Chinese government is pursuing is going to make the problem much worse. And this is, um, you know, uh, as I said, one of the worst, you know, human rights catastrophes in the world today. It's generated a lot of global attention. Um, I would argue not sufficient global attention. But what we're trying to do tomorrow is trying to sort of provide a Colorado sort of uh, anchor in in terms of raising awareness about this um, growing human rights catastrophe. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But let me turn to this young woman who is not sharing her name with us for reasons we'll explore. You've lived in the United States for several years, originally from China. What did you find in China that was too difficult to endure? What prompted you to come to the United States? Being an Uyghur is really hard. And practice your traditions and religion and just being able to speak and think freely. Also, be able to identify yourself as an Uyghur is hard, but currently it's a crime. It's a crime. And it what is. what are the consequences then of being who you are in China today? There are several ways. I will be forced to detention camps or the concentration camps Dr. Hashimi ta- just mentioned. Or I will be forced to live as like Chinese people. When I say that there's nothing wrong with Chinese people, but when you are forced to quit your tradition, yourself, your ethnic identity, it, it is not something that people usually would understand. So being yourself is a crime. Being an Uyghur is a crime, which reminds me that um, lots of people that I know personally are in those camps and they're not terrorists. They are not criminals. They just Uyghur. That's their punishment for are, being Uyghur. Are these friends of yours? Are they family members who are in the camps? And what are you able to glean from them? There are professors that I learned from, and there are uh, friends that I grew up with, and then there are um, about thirty people from my extended family are end up in the camps. Are you able to communicate with them at all? Not at all. Um, Not just me, but people who are living with them in the houses aren't able to ask whereabouts of them. So communicating from here with anyone back home would put them into trouble. It's just like during the Cultural Revolution, as we heard from the other people or from the books, Anyone in that region who have a ties, let's say, or any relationship or relatives outside that region was um, described as criminals, and that's happening all over again. Any phone call could put them into camps. And this is why you don't want to be identified. Correct. That, that association could be a very jeopardizing thing for your friends and family. Correct. Uh-huh. Do I have this right that you were required to give a blood sample, carry an ID that says you are Uyghur? Is that true in China? Yes, it is. We do have a, a Chinese ID, but we were required to have um, IDs like 
It's called Green ID. Mm-hmm. It's not a green card, of course. It's it's a, it's called Green ID, and then it was supposed to be temporary, but we will have to have that ID carry with us if we travel. Traveling within the region is harder than any sort of travel outside the world. But you don't feel free, even when you're in China domestically. No, there's that that is really foreign concept in China. Uh-huh. And yes, and um, currently, a lot of people, almost everyone. Their genome information and DNA information were taken, and there's a blood samples taken. I'm afraid that China just keeping our people there as a just organ transplant supermarket. Oh, you thought that that was what was motivating them? It's not just what I thought. According to the media and in some of the informations that we can you can find out, um, organ transplant in China is um, known. To public, but they might be one of the reason that we are really worried that they having all our information and they can use it if they need to or want to. Very briefly, Nader, uh, there's going to be this day of solidarity tomorrow. Is there something beyond visibility that you hope to accomplish? Well, it's 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 visibility, but also it's an attempt to try and um, put some constraints on Chinese human rights records. So, by trying to raise awareness, lobbying politicians, organizing a a local group that will sort of be part of a global campaign to stop these atrocities. I want to thank you both for your time and sharing your perspectives. Nader Hashemi directs DU Center for Middle East Studies. We also heard from a Uyghur woman living in Colorado. Listen to your mother. That's not just sage advice. It's the name of a storytelling event in Boulder. To celebrate Mother's Day for the last seven years, local writers have shared their stories about motherhood. Some are funny, some are heartrending. This year's event takes place Saturday at Unity of Boulder. Performance artist Amanda Cherry will take the stage. Let's listen to her stirring story from last year. It's about postpartum obsessive-compulsive disorder, which affects somewhere between 3 and 5% of new moms. People check a few times to make sure their keys haven't fallen out. People triple check that the stove is off. People correct other people's grammar. People say, I'm so OCD about that. I know they're just using hyperbole. Should make me happy being an English teacher, you know. After all, they're just being creative and literary. The problem is that if you really have OCD, you know that I'm so OCD. And OCD, especially the postpartum kind, are different entirely. Yes, I also check that the stove is off, the baby's breathing. The coffee maker's off, the baby's breathing. The back door's locked, the baby's breathing. The faucet is off, the baby's breathing. The alarm clock is on, the baby's breathing. Yes, I do. But it's the other part, the part you might not know about, that's worse, worse, worse. Because double-double checking compulsively is only the C part of OCD. It's actually the O that really gets me. Obsession. Not the good kind. Not I'm so obsessed with chocolate vampire romances, kombucha, uptown funk. (laughs) The O and OCD works like this. I'm doing nothing, just watching cars come in and out of the parking lot while holding the baby on our balcony. A sneaky snake of a thought slithers into my brain. It's not a good or bad thought. It's just a bland as wonder bread thought. 
Then it creeps its way around and gets darker and darker and darker until it's a bad, bad, bad thought like this. The cars are far down there. The balcony's high. The baby's in my arms. I better hold the baby tight. What if I'm not holding the baby tight? What if the baby squirms? What if the baby falls? What if I drop the baby? And then the image of the baby falling, of dropping the baby, gets worse and worse and worse until I have to go inside and turn on the TV and find something to distract myself until the image of dropping the baby goes away. But this is where it gets even worse because the image doesn't go away. Not really, not totally. Because even if I'm not thinking about dropping the baby, I'm thinking about thinking about dropping the baby. I'm thinking, am I thinking about dropping the baby? How much today have I thought about dropping the baby? Why did I think about dropping the baby in the first place? Oh God, oh God, oh God, what if I secretly want to drop the baby? I have one bit of magic up my sleeve to make the thought disappear. I call a friend. I ask, have you ever worried about, oh yes, I've worried about, oh good, me too. So I'm okay? Yes, you're okay. Okay, bye. The thought that's pounded my brain to a bloody mess for minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years evaporates until I give the baby a bath, dress the baby, feed the baby, take the baby to daycare, give the baby peanut butter, help the baby ride a tricycle, meet the baby's teacher, discuss the baby's report card, let the baby watch someone else's baby, teach the baby to drive, take the baby to college, watch the baby build a life, say goodbye to the baby, worry I wasted my time with the baby, worrying about the baby. So next time you color code your t-shirts, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, hanging left to right, be thankful your brand of OCD stays locked tight in the closet and hasn't seeped its way under the door just yet. Performance artist Amanda Cherry lives in Boulder with her partner Matt and her four-year-old Gavin. Cherry also teaches language arts at Southern Hills Middle School. This year's Listen to Your Mother storytelling event takes place Saturday evening at Unity of Boulder. And don't forget, Mother's Day is May 12th. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you turn the game on, you hear it a lot. Announcers gushing over the athleticism of a wide receiver or the intelligence of the quarterback. But CU journalism professor Pat Ferrucci finds when broadcasters say stuff like that, they're often racially stereotyping. And often that can determine positions on the field. CPR's Vic Vela sat down with Ferrucci and with Mike Weinstein, founder of athletic testing company Zybex Sports in Broomfield. Pat, you're a Boston sports fan. I I won't hold that against you. Yeah, try not to. (laughs) And hopefully listeners don't either. You've done this interesting research on journalists and broadcasters and how we stereotype athletes uh, through our word choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been out there talking about this. What, What do you mean by that? Give us an example. 
So sports broadcasters and journalists tend to use very specific descriptors when talking about athletes uh, that depends on race. So if you're a white athlete, you're typically described in um, ways concerning intelligence or effort or leadership. Black athletes are more about physical strength or natural ability. Asian athletes, intelligent team players, things like that. Um, and again, none of these are necessarily bad, right? They're all kind of positive attributes. But when we keep using them in terms of one um, specific race, it becomes this kind of snowball rolling down a hill yeah. to where we look at athletes through this prism of these descriptors that are related to race. Yeah. So like Tom Brady, uh, yeah. who's white, a quarterback for the Patriots. Uh, one of the greatest human beings alive <laughs> okay. or something. We're going to edit that. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> bathing in avocado. Um, uh, yeah. Right. And so when I mean, you think about Tom Brady, right? right. You, you playing plays in the NFL. What is this like the 18th year coming up? Won a bunch of stuff. Still playing at a high level at 41. Yet he's never called athletic. You know what I mean? Maybe he doesn't run as fast as somebody else, but there's no way you can do what he's done without being athletic. Instead, all of his successes are attributed to his intelligence or his leadership. Um, and again, there's always anecdotal evidence to the contrary. You'll obviously hear some white athletes called athletic or something. But for the most part, people are described like Tom Brady is. And that makes it seem like what they're doing on the field isn't really God-given or whatever we want to call it, that natural ability thing, it's more that they work toward it. So it creates the stereotype of athletes that the black athlete just steps on the court or the field or whatever. Like Cam Newton, exactly. like LeBron James, and they're, they're described as yeah. they're athletic. They're just athletic and it's not really an effort thing and there's no leadership. They're just born this way and they're going to excel for that reason. So they're not thought of necessarily as team players. They're not thought of as um, the Cam Newton thing, right? You see Cam Newton constantly criticized for kind of flipping out on the sidelines or something. But Tom Brady, who does the same thing just as often, is never criticized in that way. That's firing up the team. Yeah. That's not being selfish. I could hear it right now, what announcers are saying. Mm -hmm. I'm watching a baseball game. You know, that that guy has a lot of uh, David Eckstein in him. Yeah, or, scrappy, you know, right? Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Black players are never scrappy. <laughs> That's a, Why? There's a lot. <laughs> Again, it's the trying, right? It, yeah. You, these, these, a lot of these um, racial descriptors are based on controlled or automatic, uh, you know, adjectives. The, the white athletes are always talked about in ones that are controlled, things they work towards, scrappiness, effort, right? Black players tend to be described in ways that are automatic. They're just born that way. Another example is when Latino athletes are described as fiery. Flashy. Fiery. Like Nolan yeah. Arenado, when yeah. he uh, throws his bat in the dugout, you know, he's, mm -hmm. he's fired up. He's yep. fiery. Well, there's a lot of white dudes who do that too. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. But never those kinds of descriptors. And again, they're just historically used and it just becomes part of a, a system of thought. So when sports journalists mm -hmm. talk about sports in a racialized manner, as yep. you've described, how does that impact our audience? Yeah. And, and do media representations affect people? Yeah. And that's really where my research comes in. You know, there's these decades of studies that prove over and over always that these stereotypes exist in content. Um, and I so we looked at we did a bunch of these experiments where we're trying to see if people do the same thing. Right. And so we, again, to simplify it, we 
showed pictures of people that they didn't know and with a, the same paragraph, one person's black, one person's white. So if the same paragraph's talking about how smart somebody is and there's just this picture, you would think that the person would rate the athletes the same in intelligence, but they don't, right? They always rank the white person more intelligent than the black person, even though they don't know who these people are and they've got the same paragraph saying how smart they are. So yes, people, these these representations in the case of sports and I would say across society, they matter. They impact what we think. And the evidence suggests that in many sports, particularly football, those stereotypes affect who ends up in what positions on the field. When the statistics site Pro Football Logic studied this in 2016, it found that 82% of NFL quarterbacks that year were white. 97% of running backs were black. Some positions were even more segregated by race. 99% of special teams players were white, and 100% of defensive cornerbacks were black. But the picture is really different in youth sports. Mike Weinstein, the founder of Broomfield-based athletic testing company Zybex Sports, has data that shows race doesn't matter when it comes to how youths perform athletically. So um, Zybex Sports has been testing athletes across the nation. Uh, we'll have tested about 100,000 athletes by the end of this year. And we measure how fast they run, how high they jump, and what their general athleticism is. We do exactly what's done at the NFL Scouting Combine, but for the youth. And we've um, essentially rebranded this as the standardized athlete test. And so with that, every athlete across the nation is being measured um, by for their athleticism the exact same way. And what I'm seeing traveling across the nation, it totally supports um, Pat's uh, research that many people just feel that blacks make better athletes or I'll hear the statement that the professional sports are being racist because there's not enough um, black quarterbacks. There are only white quarterbacks. So what I found from my research, though, is that there is no difference at the youth level for um, an individual's athleticism. We've looked at the data every which way from 30,000 athletes that we had their their ethnicities, and there's just no way to um, look at the data that would um, – the data shows that there's a zero difference in the athleticism of the black athletes versus the white athletes. And I want to just emphasize, you said 30,000 kids you studied Correct. as part of yep. this, this research. So you're saying that blacks and whites – play quarterback at the same rate when they're kids, right? And But as they move up, they're moved into positions that, what, fit our narratives um, when we stereotype athletes? Is that, you know, blacks move to wide receiver? Exactly. If you're an aspiring athlete, you're looking at what the media is showing you, and you're looking at who has succeeded in professional sports, and you're just naturally aligning yourselves with those positions. But what I'd like to really make the point is that um, athletically, there's no difference and that the athlete should really be choosing what position they would be better off playing based on their skills and their capabilities versus what the societal norm is. So, Pat, let me ask you the so what question. Um, I mean, an NFL wide receiver can make a lot of money and so can a quarterback. So what are the consequences of what we're doing here? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's a whole lot of um, institutionalized reasons that this stuff happens. And um, I mean, 
yes, we're talking about professional athletes in the sense that they can make a whole lot of money. And so it's hard to sympathize necessarily with a little bit of difference. But even from a professional athlete standpoint, quarterbacks have significantly longer um, careers than running backs or something. They're protected. They make more money. They make a hell of a lot more money in terms of endorsements. Um, Just think about the backup quarterback, right? A backup quarterback is a well-paid position where people can hang around for a decade, barely playing. You know, you cannot be a backup running back for a decade. You're going to be cycled through with the cheapest person out of the draft and then gone. You know, these are the differences. And they ha- and again, it it matters over time. It's a systematic thing. And, you know, what Mike was saying, what you guys were, you know, there's this whole body of literature about stacking, this idea that we put people in positions that are racially appropriate. And there's tons of research where you'll just give these little mug shots to to coaches and they'll move them into the positions where, you know, a center, ooh, white, right? A quarterback, white. Um, and so this is just something that happens. It's, it's systematic over time, right? And there's all kinds of factors involved. We also see athletes presented in a different way when they're in commercials. Yeah. Like Cam Newton is always wearing his uniform talk, you know, and his mom's giving him soup or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, think about the old Donovan McNabb commercials about the, it was a Campbell's or whatever. Oh, it was, where, that was Donovan yeah, McNabb. Where, yeah. well, but no, and Cam News the same thing. They take the soup, the yogurt, yeah. always in a uniform doing these random things. Whereas with white athletes, they're never in uniforms most of the time, right? Not yeah. never, never, never use never. Um, but they're almost always like, you know, Tom Brady's never in a uniform when he's selling his Uggs. Um, and it, these are the things that, that matter, right? Because then we're, we're thinking of these white players as well-rounded individuals, Peyton Manning, you know, singing, play, you know, doing his little sub stuff. And, you know, he's never in a uniform most of the, I mean, because there's one. Um, but, the, but so you're seeing them as well-rounded human beings, whereas the black athletes, they're never out of that athletic, uh, you know, framework. Outside of sports, what are the real world consequences of what we're talking about here? I mean, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind, right, is that stereotyping is something we all do, and it's a cognitive process, right? There's there's not something like we're we're thinking about it necessarily. Stereotyping happens in a both automatic and controlled way. So if we don't understand that these things are stereotypes, when we encounter somebody from any group, right, it doesn't matter what group and it's different than us, immediately all the stereotypes about those groups enter our brain. And that's that's not wrong. It's not racist. It's not whatever. It's because there's representations of people and we know it, right? And so the, then the question becomes, do we apply those? And that happens in literally milliseconds. And so the idea of whether we apply them comes to really about, do we know that these are stereotypes and not accurate? And if we don't, then we just automatically apply these stereotypes. So it's not talking about like shootings or police shootings, things like that, right? You have a police officer who's in this moment – who maybe has this fear that something could happen, a black person, all these stereotypes pop up. They don't necessarily think about how these stereotypes could be wrong and shoot, right? Whereas if it was a white person, maybe those stereotypes don't happen. Again, all situations are different and we're not talking, you know, but those stereotypes actually matter. I mean, this is implicit bias, right? These things happen in milliseconds and the more knowledge, the more time it takes to apply. The less knowledge, the quicker we apply. The quicker we apply, the more likely we are to make mistakes. And Mike, given your research, is there hope that maybe someday that our, what, what's in our head will change? I'm sure hoping. And 
because this has been going on for a long time, you know, since you know we started you know, studying this, that there is this racial bias. And what I'm trying to do with this research here is with some very conclusive uh, numbers to show that at least at the youth level, that there's just no difference athletically uh, based on the ethnicity. And there's so many reasons as to why the the bias continues to this day and, and that the it appears like there is a segregation by position. And this is like one thing that we can look at that should show people that, you know, it's on you. If you really want to be a quarterback, whether you're black or white, doesn't matter. It's your athleticism. And we're really trying to show the, the athletes and the youth that, you know, really, if you want to work hard and strive to go to whatever position you want, do it. Don't forget it. I mean, forget about your race. Just do it. It's on you. I think this is fascinating. Guys, thank you so much for coming and talking about this. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Yeah. CPR's Vic Vela speaking with CU journalism professor Pat Ferrucci and Mike Weinstein, co-founder of Zybeck Sports in Broomfield. Some of you took issue with the Colorado political cartoonist known as Made by Jim Bob. We had him on the show Wednesday to talk about his often controversial work, which is now featured in the Washington Examiner. I started our interview by describing a cartoon that got flagged, removed from social media. I'm going to have to set it up again to explain the feedback we got. A couple is en flagrante, and the woman confesses she's not on birth control. Her partner replies, don't worry, I identify as a 12-year-old girl. I asked our guest if he was making fun of people with different gender identities. Uh, No, I don't believe it's mocking. I believe it's pointing out a new context for viewing identity and how, if you place it in reality in certain circumstances, there are some limitations to that. After the interview, listener Kitty Sargent wrote in, It's hard to imagine anyone even remotely connected to the LGBTQ plus community not being highly offended. This is the height of disingenuity, she says. And Twitter user Colorado Mountain Goat adds, This guy truly revealed his bad faith BS as he sputtered out nonsense. I was hoping for more prying questions about this guy's clearly ideological content. We always welcome your feedback. You can find all the ways to reach out at cpr.org slash connect. Beer is getting hyper-local, with tap rooms springing up that reflect individual neighborhoods. You may no longer have to cross town to hang out at your favorite brewery. It's just one of the trends we're going to talk about now with Ed Sealover of the Denver Business Journal. He has also written several Colorado beer guides. Hi, Ed. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me on this morning. It's nice to talk to you again. Help us understand this shift towards hyper-local. Well, it used to be that if you wanted a great craft beer, you would probably go down to your local liquor store, go down to your local bar, see what's coming in from a nationally known brewery like a Dogfish Head or Stone Brewing. Uh, That is not the case anymore. Uh, With breweries 
uh, cresting around 7,400 across the U.S. last year. And that's a 17 percent jump just in one year from 2017 to 2018. Uh, More people are looking for the thing that's around the corner, that's in your own state. Uh, National breweries, uh, I'm thinking of uh, an Avery, a Great Divide, something like that from this area, are having trouble selling beer in other states where breweries that just sell around the corner and maybe in a few local liquor stores are going gangbusters right now. It's a big shift in the industry. Oh, that's fascinating. It also makes me wonder if you can open a bar anymore and not brew or distill something of your own. Well, I think you still can, but uh, if you're looking to sell to the beer crowd, you're going to have to open a bar that has about 20, 25 taps of a whole lot of different beers right now. And you'll even be in competition with a lot of breweries, whereas you know, 10 years ago, you'd go into a brewery, they had six to eight of their own beers on tap. You're going to see breweries now that have 20 to 25 beers on tap. One of the benefits of being able to sell and concentrate your sales locally is that you can try a wide range of beers. You don't have to find that beer that's going to sell across across the state or across the country, you just need to find one that sells in the tap room. And that means it can be a lot more specialized for a lot more niche crowd. Ah, we'll talk more about the economic interests that mean hyperlocal is successful. And I suppose you don't have a crystal ball at sea lover, but will they be successful in the long run? I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, but uh, but yes, I mean, it looks like it's going that way. One of the big reasons is that the economics of selling a beer across the bar in the tap room are much better uh, than the economics of selling a beer uh, through a store or through a bar. You can make about five bucks a pint, uh, pure profit, just off selling in the tap room, where once you start having to find a distributor or pay oh. for packaging, uh, that's going to go way down. So some breweries, uh, Wincoop Brewing, for example, have given up distribution in order to just bring people in, figuring that the greater crowds they can get in the bar, and especially if you have a kitchen, this is going to help out a lot too, uh, will make up for the lack of sales that they're doing in stores or in restaurants that are not theirs these days. So it's a risk. I mean, you're still going to get really big only if you've got a national audience. Um, but if you want to make a successful living, selling across the bar into a few local liquor stores is not a bad way to go anymore. How does this affect the kind of beer that's being produced? I mean, it it just sounds like this is a market in which you can take maybe more risks. It is. Uh, if you only have to worry about whether it sells right in front of you and, and how quickly you replace it then, you're willing to try more things. I think it's one of the reasons that we've seen the trend in the last two years toward what are called hazy IPAs. These are India pale ales that aren't quite as bitter and piney as the typical IPAs, but have more of almost a, a tropical fruit flavor and have a and have a very hazy body. They started out uh, at just a few places and people initially rolled their eyes saying, oh, you know, I, I don't want this. And then they found out there was a huge audience for that. Well, if this would have been 15 years ago and people would have had to have been developing beers that they knew would catch on with a national audience buying a liquor store, that never would have happened. But because so many breweries got to experiment with it and see how well it sold in their tap rooms, it took off uh, because they had more uh, more chances there. You can't come on this show and use the words hazy body and not explain <laughs> what that means. 
typically, uh, most beers uh, are clear when you get to an IPA or an, an amber ale. Not clear in the terms of see-through, but at least there, there's not a lot of sediment in the beer. In a hazy IPA, uh, there's uh, the way that it's made makes it a little bit more sediment. It almost looks like a cloudy beer. Huh. It doesn't necessarily affect the flavor of the beer. Some people were initially put off by the look of that beer, um, but the love for the attributes that it created, so you're, you're smelling pineapple, tasting guava, uh, uh, or something that quickly offset uh, the look of the beer. Is this going to result, though, in a bunch of mediocre beers or just like weird, bad, short-run beers? Well, it could have. And, and again, uh, a number of years ago, it probably would have more likely resulted in that. But with 80 breweries in the city of Denver alone, nearly 400 in the state of Colorado, you don't have the opportunity to be a mediocre or a bad brewery anymore. In oh. addition to seeing a 17% jump in brewery openings last year, there was also a significant jump in brewery closings across the country, 219 of them in total, as people now will not go to the local brewery just because of the local brewery, you've at least got to offer something, particularly as you usually have more choices in which local brewery you want to go to. So I think it will lead to more experiments. And if you like traditional lagers and amber ales, maybe this is not what you're looking for. But if you're someone who wants to see what kind of interesting beers could be, uh, flavors could be put into beer, this is a trend you're going to like. What's the worst flavor you've ever seen in beer or ever tried? I didn't try it, but I had a brewery who will remain unnamed because I like them uh, say that they once made a beer with radishes uh, and that tasted essentially like a uh, a mop bucket of water, although I've never tasted that, so I'm not sure how they knew that. Um, there is a limitation. You can find some really interesting flavors. Cucumber can make good beers. Uh, you know, beers that simulate the, the taste of like a French toast are getting to be big, but I guess there are limits on which vegetables can actually be good in your sipping beer. I wonder if you would briefly tell us the story of one of these kind of small neighborhood hyper-local breweries. I'll tell you one that, that I have watched for a couple of years and have watched grow pretty big, and that is Westfax Brewing in Lakewood. Uh, when this opened three years ago, it, it was you know, its initial moniker was the brewery next to Casa Bonita. And you thought, OK, this is this is kind of a gimmick. Um, <laughs> but these guys make really serious beer. And in a city like Lakewood, which is I forget it's the fourth or fifth largest city in Colorado, there is a limited number of breweries. I think there's only six in the entire city. And so Westfax, instead of being you know, a gimmick, hey, look at us, and then we're also going to ship out brewery, decided it wanted to make beers for the neighborhood, supported a lot of local arts organizations, brought people in. And even though it's not on a traditional neighborhood route, it's literally right on West Colfax Avenue, you can't go in there without it being packed these days. People will walk from the growing neighborhoods around it, drive from within the mile around it, and they don't have to get their beer out much. They do distribute a number of local bars, but you see how much they've grown just by selling to the people around them, and they've caught attention for the beers they're making as well. And sopapillas aren't far away if you want them. Uh, thanks for being with us, Ed. <laughs> Absolutely, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Ed Sealover of the Denver Business Journal. He's the author of Two Guides to Beer in Colorado, Mountain Brew, and History, Hikes, and Hops. If you want to learn more about the last 160 years of beer in our state, History Colorado is tracing that story in a new exhibit. It opens May 18th in Denver. (laughs) 
Finally today, an enchanting voice has been sadly silenced. Opera singer and Denver native Charity Tilleman Dick died Tuesday at age 36. The coloratura soprano underwent two lung transplants in the midst of her career and kept singing. Tillman Dick told us a few years back that she fell in love with opera at age five. By 19, she was studying at a prestigious academy in Europe. Then came a diagnosis of a potentially fatal lung disease. It was quite shocking and it was challenging. But the truth is any of our lives could be over very soon. We all wake up every morning with the faith that society is going to move forward and that we aren't going to be hit by a Mack truck and that that life will, will continue. But all of our lives can seem to change in an is- instant when we're reminded of our own mortality. Um, so I felt like the best thing to do was to continue to live my life in the best way that I could. And what I wanted to do was sing opera singer and Colorado native Charity Tilleman Dick speaking with us in 2017 after the release of her memoir, The Encore. She died Tuesday at age 36. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.